Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. India was the largest market for the Chinese video sharing app, TikTok. But following a deadly border clash last month, India has banned dozens of Chinese apps. We look into why TikTok took India by storm and who, until recently, was on it. And this year, the very finest Bordeaux wines are selling for cheap, relatively speaking. The pandemic only explains part of the price drop. Climate change is, for now, causing more good vintages than the market is used to. But first... This week, America's Supreme Court ruled on a law that would have sharply limited abortion access in Louisiana. Your Honor, this is a law that restricts abortion by regulating the physicians rather than their patients. Louisiana's decision to require abortion providers to have admitting privileges was justified by abundant evidence of life-threatening health and safety violations. People have very strong feelings, and a lot of people morally think it's wrong. And a lot of people morally think the opposite is wrong. The court struck the law down on Monday. It's the latest in a series of decisions that have leaned liberal and dismayed conservatives. Last month, the court halted the president's efforts to end DACA, the Deferred Action for Child Arrivals law that allowed young undocumented people to stay in America. This is just the beginning. You are going to become American citizens and great American citizens. Another decision barred workplace discrimination against gay and transgender people. And there are more politically contentious cases on the horizon. Yesterday, the court said it would hear arguments this autumn in a case about releasing an unredacted version of Robert Mueller's report on Russian interference in the 2016 election. Key to understanding the recent rulings is the man at the ideological middle of the court, Chief Justice John Roberts. Does his seeming leftward shift signal a change of heart or some canny maneuvering? Well, John Roberts was appointed to the court by George W. Bush in 2005, and he's just about to finish his 15th term as chief. Stephen Macy is our Supreme Court correspondent. He's famous for saying in his 2005 hearings when he was being confirmed, uh, the judges should be like umpires, figures with no skin in the game, uh, rooting for neither team. He votes with the conservative side almost all the time, uh, including in 2010, when he voted to strike down outside campaign spending limits. Uh, He also wrote a bitter dissent in the same-sex marriage ruling in 2015. And until this week, uh, he had never voted on the pro-choice side of an abortion decision. But this term, things have been different. How? 
Until this term, Roberts had sided with the liberal justices in closely divided cases um, only a handful of times. Uh, But this year, uh, Chief Justice Roberts has swung left in not one, but three very important cases uh, involving gay and trans rights, immigrant protections, and abortion. And he is firmly in control of the court. This term of the 53 cases decided so far, Roberts has been in the majority on 52 occasions. And, and what do you suppose has, has driven that shift? Has, has he ideologically shifted in, in some way, or is the court changing around him? I'd say it's a little bit of both, but mainly it's the composition of the court changing. Justice Anthony Kennedy retired two years ago, and he was the median justice and the swing justice up until that time. So until the end of 2018, Roberts could stay thick with his friends on the right, knowing that deeply controversial cases would sometimes go left, sometimes go right, and the court would not appear to be a hopelessly ideological institution with the same red-blue alignment in each case. Without Kennedy, if Roberts did not cross the aisle from time to time, his court would begin to look pretty crass. So I think he's making a concerted effort to project an image of nonpartisanship for the court overall. And his votes, the ones that we're seeing in the last couple of weeks, are consistent with that. So how much to to read into the left-leaning decisions he's most recently made? Well, one thing to point out, many people think that the title of the chief justice is chief justice of the Supreme Court. It's not. Uh, His title is chief justice of the United States. And I think that Roberts takes that responsibility seriously. He wants to preside over a court whose decisions are respected and followed. He's really there to project nonpartisanship. But if you look at these recent rulings, uh, there are some clever, canny moves in there that will allow the court to shift more conservative in future rulings on the same topics. So on the surface of it, these decisions might look as if they're a liberal shift when in fact they're sort of uh, secretly opening the the door for future more conservative decisions. How, How does that work? The abortion ruling is fascinating. Roberts was in a very tight spot here. Um, On one hand, he clearly would like to uphold this law that Louisiana had to make it more difficult for abortion clinics to stay open. In 2016, he voted with the dissenters to say that an identical law in Texas should be upheld. And he personally deplores abortion. So this is something that he did not want to do. But on the other hand, what kind of message would it send to America that if you simply replace one of the justices on the Supreme Court and wait a couple of years, you can try again, and that is all it takes to change the meaning of the Constitution. So he voted with the liberals, but in a clever way that signals both that he will be willing that Roberts will be willing to uphold a range of other abortion limits that states may cook up. And he's even open to reconsidering the bedrock case that established abortion rights, Roe versus Wade. This case did not present that question, but he opened the door to future cases, many of which are coming up to the court in the next couple of years, where the fundamental question of whether there's a constitutional right to abortion will be raised. And with all that in mind, then, what are the the upcoming court decisions and and how do you think they'll fall? 
Well, I think the biggest cases left to decide next week are the ones involving President Trump's taxes. These are the most politically fraught uh, cases of the term, too. And I think what we can expect is Chief Justice Roberts to perhaps find a way to split the difference between congressional Democrats who want to see Trump's taxes and a New York prosecutor who would like to see them for a criminal case. It's possible that the House Democrats will lose and the New York prosecutor will win. But the result will be that Americans will not get to see Trump's taxes anytime soon. Because if the financial documents flow to the grand jury in New York, they will remain under seal, at least until President Trump leaves office, whenever that may be. So Chief Justice Roberts wants a, a, a strong court um, and, and uh, a, a somewhat depoliticized one, I suppose. But all the power seems to be accruing to him. It's true that the fact of the matter is that on a nine-member court, there is usually someone wielding a lot of power in these divisive cases. That's the design. So a lot of this is falling on Chief Justice Roberts' shoulders. And I would say that operating within the constraints of his judicial conservatism and his personal conservative commitments, he's actually doing quite well overall. He's managing to steer the court during a very fraught political moment. And despite his, his disinclination from siding with the liberals in a really robust way, he's doing it in a narrow way that is preventing the court from devolving into a partisan miasma. Stephen, thank you very much for your time. Great being with you, Jason. Thank you. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. This week, the Indian government banned 59 Chinese-made apps, citing security and privacy concerns. The list included games, blogging platforms, e-commerce apps, and TikTok. <laughs> India is the largest market for the social network. More than 100 million Indians scroll through TikTok's endless stream of 15-second videos. More than a million make them. Goofy, funny, even instructional little films, often set to pop music. But now, this seemingly harmless new pastime finds itself at the center of a battle between the world's two most populous countries. So TikTok arrived in India um, at an incredibly uh, good moment, a serendipitous moment. Alex Trevelli is The Economist's India correspondent and is based in Delhi. It came just after uh, Geo, uh, a giant 4G network run by Reliance Industries, made mobile data in India cheap everywhere and indeed cheaper than anywhere else in the world. And at the same time, uh, smartphone adoption had really taken off and 
there is a, a space, a quite apparent space in the media landscape for Indians to talk or at least joke and sing at one another. And they just flooded into TikTok. And there were, by some measures, at least a thousand, perhaps several thousand Indians who made their entire livelihood uh, off of TikTok popularity. So more than a million people in India actually creating TikTok videos. I mean, what, what kind of stuff are we talking about? So this is what's fascinating about TikTok, or was to me. Most of this stuff, depending on how you look at it, is either incredibly boring drivel, or uh, if you look a little bit more closely, a fascinating tour of the social landscape of this enormous, unruly country. Most of what people put on TikTok is lip-syncing to popular film songs. Very much of what goes on TikTok are silly, very broad jokes, like slapstick humor. And then sometimes it's much weirder things. Cries from the heart. Very short instructional videos. Often it's made by people who don't really know what they're doing, but it finds an audience when the pool is so big. But the government's pulled the plug on TikTok and and others. Why is that? India pulled the plug on TikTok and I think it's 58 other apps, removing them from uh, the Apple Store and the Google Android Store that you have available to you here in India as what seems to be a rather transparent act of retaliation against the Chinese after a clash at their disputed boundary in the Himalayan region of Ladakh. This was a quite horrifying incident in which at least uh, 20 Indian soldiers were killed during hand-to-hand combat, an unknown number of Chinese too. And India has been in a bit of a tailspin diplomatically ever since then, trying to figure out what its options are uh, with regard to the Chinese. Now, officially, the the government ministry of information technology has not characterized this as a retaliation. Instead, it's supposed to be a matter of uh, maintaining India's cybersecurity, even sovereignty is what is what they claimed. But it's very hard to see how that rationale adds up. If you look at how many other aspects of India's tech landscape have been infiltrated, as it were, by Chinese money, uh, Chinese investors have been very keen on India's Uh, digital space for a long time now. Their capital uh, investors in Bangalore are among the most important. And it's only these very consumer-facing apps, many of them entirely silly, that have been banned. So I don't think anyone is taking very seriously the idea that this is a matter of preserving security, except insofar as uh, putting up a strong face against China and its commercial interests in India might be said to be a matter of national security. But so far, this discussion has, has only been about TikTok, not the other 58 apps that, that have been, been banned. Why is that? TikTok is by far the most famous. It's the headliner of that whole uh, suite of apps, which are most of them unrelated in corporate terms. Some of them are uh, virus scanners or utility apps. Uh, some are video games. Um, and some of them are quite like TikTok, actually, for slightly different demographics. TikTok is just the biggest of them all. If, if you were a teenager, however, who was in love with the app called Likey or Bigos Live, you'd be heartbroken about losing that app as well. Well, what about the heartbreak from, from TikTokers? Oh, TikTokers' heartbreak is the most immense of all. And it's interesting so far to see that just about no one is complaining, complaining in the sense of asking um, 
of the Indian government. Why did you do this? Or how dare you take a harmless joy from our lives? It's uh, somewhat sadly being conceded as a necessity to the nationalist cause of defending Indian territory from the Chinese. Right. And what about TikTok itself, though, who's been cut off from this enormous market? What have they said? So TikTok itself is is quite alarmed. They've made enormous investments in India, which is the biggest market for its app in the world. I think that TikTok has about 2,000 employees in India. They've not yet sacked them all, but uh, some statements of concern have come from their corporate board, ByteDance, that's the company that owns them. And China's national uh, official spokesmen have complained that this is an unfair sort of retribution. That said, there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope expressed anywhere uh, that this ban is going to be reversed anytime soon. I mean, there's a certain amount of irony here, a Chinese company being shut down, having uh, being limited in its ability to express. Yes, there is a, a somewhat obvious irony in China's pointing a finger at India or any other country and complaining that they have blocked apps from working in their domestic market on grounds of national security. Of course, China does that to Google, Twitter, Facebook, uh, the like. They have their own walled garden of an internet as a result. That said, I don't think that ByteDance being kicked out of India actually matters very much to China as a, as a trading power, nor is it an especially fearsome uh, response to a border clash But it may be the first step in an uncertain uh, series of escalations between these two countries. And China has got to be, um, its foreign ministry has got to be wondering what comes next. Is this going to be regarded as a satisfying response in India by Indians? Will the country need to think of something else, perhaps something that interrupts the meatier parts of of, uh, the 50-some billion dollars annual trade between these two countries? And, and I think the answer has got to be, we don't know yet. So it's a time in which uh, fast changes and startling movements uh, between these two big, big countries have become the order of the day. Alex, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. If you're like me, you'll be celebrating the end of the working week later with a glass of wine. And if, unlike me, you buy the really good stuff, there's some welcome news. Last year's best Bordeaux reds are selling at a steep discount. It's all relative, they're still expensive, but much cheaper than they could be. The reasons for that have to do with climate change, COVID-19, and a kind of futures market that dates back hundreds of years. There hasn't been much good news coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, but there has been one small silver lining for enophiles. Dan Rosenheck is our data editor. Last year's excellent vintage of Bordeaux Reds is selling for 15 to 30% less than the 2018 vintage did. You can get the very top labels for the bargain price of $350 to $500 a bottle and second tier ones for about 100 to 175. The last time prices were that low was in 2016. Okay, but still out of my league. But but why have prices dropped if last year's vintage was so good? 
it has to do with the peculiar way that Bordeaux is sold. In a system that actually originally dates all the way back to the 17th century, Bordeaux estates, winemakers or chateaux as they are called in French, don't sell wine directly to anybody except for these middlemen called negociants who inhabit a virtual space called the Place de Bordeaux, which is a market on which they buy and then sell the rights to sell Bordeaux wine two years into the future. And what's in it for the various participants is that the chateaus get money up front, which is always good. And the buyers, in theory, get wine at a better price than they will ever get again. And the negociants seek to make money in the middle. Right. But what does that have to do with prices falling during the pandemic? So 2018 was a very good year. The economy was doing well. Prices were raised by a pretty substantial margin from the 2017 vintage. There was also an increase in 2015 to 2016. And historically, good vintages were pretty rare in Bordeaux. You would typically get two, maybe three years out of every 10 where it was really sunny, not too rainy, no big disease or frost problems. That's now changed thanks to above all climate change, which is making hot, dry summers the norm rather than the exception, and also to uh, an embrace of pretty cutting-edge technology, both in the vineyard monitoring the vines and in the cellar to make the wine, a lot of investment on that front. So now you have a lot more chateaus making good wine in a lot more good vintages than there used to be. And although demand for fine wine has gone up, particularly as emerging economies such as China develop a taste for it, uh, it hasn't gone up as fast as the supply has. So there was kind of a glut on the marketplace where producers thought, well, 2018 is better than 2017. Let's jack up the price. But uh, there was all this 2017, 16, 15 still sitting on the market. Now they tried to dump 2018 on it as well, and there just weren't the buyers. And so it kind of wound up languishing on the balance sheets of the negociants and their inventories. So basically, they were going to have to cut prices anyway uh, to clear the glut. And COVID just gave them the perfect excuse to do so. So given that these investments then were always made two years in advance, the people who ponied up the money a couple of years ago must be feeling pretty hard done by. Yes, if you were a buyer of 2018 or 17 Bordeaux, um, you were probably going to be eating a loss on that. And that's a problem for chateaus because in order to keep this system going, they need buyers to feel like uh, at the very least they're not going to lose money on this and they have a chance to spring a little profit for it. Otherwise, why would they uh, pony up money now for wine they're not going to get for two years and uh, and really not be able to drink enjoyably for 10 or 15 because Bordeaux take a long time to soften up to be ready to drink. At least the good ones do. So I think that it was a pretty big marketing challenge for the chateaus and the negociants to lower their prices to clear the market without – cutting the buyers who did stand by them in recent overpriced years. And I think basically they're saying, look, COVID happened, the world as we knew it and the economy as we knew it ended. And, you know, prices go up, prices go down. What are you going to do? You know, you're in, you buy stocks, they can go down. You buy wine. This wasn't our fault. But given that this trend is partly driven by climate change and, and new technology, is what we're seeing now in terms of prices the new normal? I think for now, this trend is likely to continue. We will see more good vintages and more chateau capable of producing great wine. 
In terms of the future price trajectory, I do think that more consumers around the world, particularly in emerging markets, will develop a taste for fine wine. So I think demand will go up. And eventually, climate change may heat up Bordeaux so much that they can't make the same kinds of wines that they always did there. And if it gets too hot, then all bets are off and these things will become priceless commodities. So in the long run, I can see some potentially decent fundamentals, but I think the balance of pressure in the medium term is going to be towards a lower price level, which for patient buyers is great. I mean, ultimately, you can't drink a stock. You can you can drink a wine, and I recommend it. I will drink to that. Dan, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and see you back here on Monday. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.